Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm happy to have you here today. So welcome back. I hope you're doing well. Um, in this episode, I'll be sharing with you a recent Dharma talk I gave, which is a continuation of a, a first part of a talk on peace with an uncertainty. And this, this talk endeavors to explore um, and give some reflection around how in Vipassana meditation, when we really give a close examination of moment-to-moment -moment experience, one thing that starts to really impress upon us is that we, the meditator in this process, will start to see the relentlessness of change. So there's the, the, the incessant experience of changing body sensation, changing sounds, changing thoughts, changing feelings. And at one level, this uh, the scene, this direct perception of change, um, can sometimes bring a sense of uncertainty, that we just don't know how things are going to change. There's sort of a mysteriousness to the, the way that experience uh, unfolds, and that can precipitate a kind of uh, uncertainty or fear. Um, and I would say, if we, when we, particularly in our life, when we really encounter the big manifestations of change, when things we deeply care about change against our hopes or will or um, preferences, uh, we can really feel this is a source of, of, of pain and suffering and loss and, and grief in our life. So learning to be with change is a cornerstone of the spiritual path. Um, and... In Vipassana, what I'm trying to suggest in this talk is that by observing the immediacy of change, we also start to intuit a dimension of our being, a backdrop of our being as of consciousness that is undisturbed by this flowing change. And that's where the peace is. The peace is not within the experiences of change. The peace is a dimension of being that is um, within the change, but not defined by the change. So that's what I get into in this talk. But before this talk, I just want to flag for your attention that on December 11th, that's a Saturday, probably the second Saturday of December, Terry, uh, my partner, and I will be teaching our first day-long retreat, which we're calling a Winter's Retreat, a Day of Yin. We'll be teaching this, this first retreat from our home in Maine, live streaming from our home studio. And the two things that I want to point out about this retreat that we're really emphasizing are the twin themes of our kind of approach to spiritual practice. And those two twin themes are synergy and consistency. The consistency piece is really recognizing that for any transformation to occur, for any significant transformation to occur, practice needs to be engaged with in an ongoing, consistent manner. So daily practice is essential. And one of the things that I have always appreciated about retreats is that they're an in, sort of an intensified day, few days, week, or month, or even longer, but a, a, an intensive period of practice that can recharge one's commitment to that consistency. But what helps with the consistency, I think, is appreciating how powerfully the synergy of the particular practices that Terry and I share, how powerfully these, these practices work together in synergy. 
And the two broad aspects of this synergy are how yin yoga and qigong work in tandem to smooth and harmonize our energy. And the idea is that when our energy is harmonized, we're not as scattered, we're more gathered together, there's more of a unified experience of being, where the mind just is not as diversified or dispersed um, in, a, in its tendency to jump into uh, all sorts of thought streams in different directions. So the, the yin yoga and qigong harnesses our energy and smooths out our energy, so we feel more emotionally balanced, there's greater emotional equilibrium, we're more unified in our being. And that experience of harmonized qi is, is more or less analogous to samadhi. So the samadhi state of, of deep peace and contentment. And through the powerful practices of yin yoga and qigong to access samadhi, we then uh, set the stage for a, a, a kind of a smoother, easier time meditating where we feel calmer, quieter from the beginning. And this allows us to really access the wisdom dimensions of meditation, particularly the wisdom dimensions of having a better, clearer perception of our experience and a much more direct, accessible appreciation of the context or the backdrop of our consciousness awake to that experience. So these two practices, the yin, the energy side of yin yoga and qigong and the causal side or the, the meditative side of awareness, that we emphasize in yin meditation. They work really well together. And a day of practice, in a, where we work with these gentle practices in a low-key way, but a day of consistent practice from roughly 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. is a great way to, to really experience for yourself the power of the synergy and consistency of these practices. So if this is of interest to you, we really in invite you to join us for this day-long retreat on December 11th. If you're not able to attend live, we also just want to say your registration will um, give you access, uh, lifetime access to these recordings in our library. So we, we anticipate that some people will be attending live. We also anticipate some people will be coming through the, through the recordings to uh, participate in the retreat. And beyond the actual day itself, our hope, Terry and I hope that the, the recordings that you'll have will provide a template for you to be able to do your own self-retreats going forward. Um, and that's sort of what we're trying to promote, uh, independence of practice, but giving you support for that independence with a real appreciation of the synergy and power of the consistency of practice that a retreat can afford. So if that's of interest, there's going to be a link for you in the show notes, but you can also head over to the website joshsummers.net forward slash events, and you'll see all the information regarding the retreat there. But um, if you're at all intimidated by the idea of a day-long retreat, let me put you at ease. You can do this. If you're able to listen to me right now, you can do a day-long retreat. Um, we adapt the practices for all uh, experience levels um, and try to make the practices as accessible to anybody that's a, that has interest in the practices. So yin yoga is a really gentle, non-performative kind of yoga. Qigong is a very accessible practice for all bodies, at all ages, at all capacities. And meditation is available whatever posture we're in. So um, if you're interested in kickstarting your practice or really deepening your ongoing practice, we look forward to practicing with you and encourage you to consider joining us on December 11th. Okay. Okay. 
Now, without further ado, I give you the continuation of my current series of reflections on peace within uncertainty. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. Great to see you all here. Um, been looking forward to practicing again with you tonight. Um, uh, so after last week's talk on, it was sort of uh, after the fact, titled Peace Within Uncertainty, um, I received some good questions over email and I wanted to, it, it occurred to me that it would be probably a good idea to, to have at least a part two uh, to that theme and probably a few more reflections around that theme. Um, and to maybe put it in context, uh, in the Sangha for you know the good the first year of the Sangha, I really tried to emphasize a approach to meditation that I refer to as yin meditation, which you've heard a lot about. And the idea with that is to be really to 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 establish a foundation of gentleness and kindness and and uh, freedom of choice around how you are with your experience when you sit and meditate. Um, and and one of the primary intentions that I have around that approach is to um, a destigmatize thinking and and depathologize thinking in a meditation, so that med, uh, thoughts and and um, th the world of thought that we often find ourselves in is included within the practice. Um, the other intention of yin meditation is to just establish a, a, a container of safety where you as the meditator know that you have choices that you can come back to your perch, like your hands or your body sitting or sounds or your breath. You can always come back to a perch as and when um, it feels indicated or, or, or uh, that you need, or need of rest or uh, a reprieve. And then um, from this yin approach, and, and if you, are new to this 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 style i would say check out in the library that we have please check out the the um, the yin meditation workshop you know there's a really good intro that i try to give on that there that can be a, a refresher um, but from yin meditation we're now expanding the instructions to include uh, what we might start to notice when we find ourselves coming to presence and so this is I'm loosely saying this is the, the, the domain of what is referred to as Vipassana meditation. Vipassana is a word uh, from the Pali language, which is uh, the language that the early Buddhist teachings were uh, sort of uh, established in. And it, it was an, uh, an oral tradition that was just used for these, these teachings. And Vipassana means to see clearly. So when we're present and we look very closely at our moment-to-moment -moment experience, and that's the kind of the heart of how, uh, when I spoke to Joseph Goldstein about this years back, I asked, how would you define Vipassana? He said, Vipassana is simply uh, awareness of what's happening moment-to-moment -moment without grasping. So uh, when people start with Vipassana, there's often a lot of uh, effort that's uh, put in place to try to get into the present moment, to be aware of what's happening moment to moment. And um, in, in my experience, that effort to get into the present moment becomes counterproductive. It kind of gets the person, the meditator, trying hard, harder and harder to be, to be anchored. Um, and that, that kind of energy of bearing down and trying to do it right 
uh, often creates agitation, which which clouds the ability to really see clearly what's occurring when we find ourselves present. So uh, my 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 tip on this is don't try to be present. <laughs> let let presence happen on its own. Just it's the, if we just relax and observe what occurs, our mind will naturally come into moments of of clear presence, and then it will get into a drifting state again, wander off, and then it will come back to a moment of clear presence. So the the instructions that we're we're adding to the practice now from the Vipassana tradition are what we can do when we're we find ourselves in in a in a, a moment or a space of clear presence, and um, kind of kind of contextualizing this now in in early Buddhist teaching, um, one of the one of a, a very famous statement that the the Buddha apparently uttered was the statement in Pali, which is "Sabe Sankara Anicca." Sabe Sankara Anicca, and Sabe means all. Sankara, the second word means conditioned things. So all conditioned things, anicca, are impermanent. All conditioned things are of the nature to arise and cease. And as I tried to say last week, that's not um, intellectually a very deep thing. You know, sure, if you get to early adolescence, you know, in your early teens, you start to realize the truth of that, that things are changing. Um, for better or worse. And what I tried to say last week is that for this statement, for this uh, truth of reality to transform us, for it to actually open a door of freedom and liberation in our being, uh, we have to see it very directly or experience it very intimately, very directly. So it's not an idea. And that was one of the questions I got was, you know, uh, is is the idea to sort of intellectually recognize that, that that as people, we just have to accept change. Otherwise, we're going to be frustrating ourselves. And on one level, there, there may be there may be some help in the kind of intellectual framing that we, we take around this. But um, from what I've seen and what my experience has, has uh, taught me and what many of my teachers have emphasized is this is this as an intellectual idea won't really um, transform our, our relationship to ourself and, and our life. It has to be seen quite intimately. And that's the, that's really the, the intention of Vipassana to, to bring this truth into vivid color in the immediacy of our experience. And um, as I was thinking about this talk and the last week's reflection and some of the conversation we had, I was reminded of something that uh, Rodney Smith, one of my first teachers, said, um, which I think is similar to, it's another way of saying all conditioned things are of the nature to arise and cease. Um, and he, the way he put it was, when we look at nouns, going into grammar, he said, when we, when we watch nouns, we see verbs. Or another way of saying it is all nouns are verbs. Or another way of saying it is we mistake verbs to be nouns. In other words, when we really look closely at anything in our experience, whether it's a sensation, and sensation itself, if you look up the word sensation in the dictionary, is 
a noun. It's I don't know what the exact definition of it is, but it's probably something to do with, um, you know, uh, tactile, physical, physical, uh, uh, I can only know how, how it might be defined in, in the dictionary, but you can get the idea that there'll be some specific definition that this is what a noun is, it's a thing, or this is what a sensation is, and sounds. You know, auditory uh, stimulation. We call those. We call them a, like a bird chirp or a car honk. It's, it's they, they're designated with nouns. But when we look closely, we start to see that these 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 things that seem solid are in the in a, are are revealing a changing nature or an impermanent nature. And I think what what the Dharma and what the Buddha was was getting on to in his teaching was that the reason we suffer a lot in life is, uh, or and one of the things that generates a lot of suffering in life is a mistaken relationship between two nouns in particular. And one of the nouns that we mistake is the noun we call me. We take ourself to be a solid, continuous thing. And the second now we may mistake is the world or the not me's. So we have the bits that are me. We take those as solid and permanent. And we take the, we see other things around us as being fixed and, and object-like. But Vipassana, this, this practice of observing moment-to-moment -moment experience, uh, is, and, and I should say that in case you've explored Vipassana elsewhere, uh, when, I'm trying to, when, when I define Vipassana, I'm trying to define it in terms of the broad intention. So the broad intention of Vipassana is to see the changing nature of experience. And, and from seeing the changing nature of experience to then experience the insights, the direct insights, not as ideas, these aren't intellectual insights, but sort of um, experiential insights about the nature of experience. To, to really feel that. Um, but in Vipassana, what we do is we kind of exhaustively explore and look at everything that's not me. So we started that already, looking at sounds and just looking at the field of things that tend to be classified as not me. And the common one in meditation is just the field of sound. And then we also start to explore whatever we take to be me. Like, how, what, what am I? What am I resting this, uh, this notion, this idea, this conceptualization of who I am? What am I resting that upon? Or what am I building that out of? So we start, we've started to look at one thing we often take to be a solid me, and that's our body or the body. There's the noun again, the body. But when we start to look at the body, we start to see that there's a changing or an endless changing display of changing sensations and i'll have, have more to say about that shortly but just in case anyone is um hasn't heard this yet uh if the practice of vipassana is establishing this process of looking at everything that's not me and everything that is me it follows logically that there are no distractions. So, so this is something that um, I try to say every now and then because 
it's all too common in, in meditation culture to think when we're practicing, there should be something that we we're experiencing and or more often than not, there's usually things that are happening that we feel like should definitely not be happening in our meditation, namely, you know, drifting mind, wandering mind, uh, confused states of mind. So uh, from the beginning, I, I really try to sort of lay this out clearly that there are no distractions in this process. Um, <clears throat> so to, to now um, draw on, uh, I would say some, some wisdom from, from a, from a teacher from another era. Um, I wanted to share with you uh, two paragraphs from a book that I've been reading and reading slowly. Um, just because I, I, with Dharma books, I try to just chew on them a little bit at a time and not, not read them like cover to cover like a novel or something. But um, this particular teacher's name is Chogyam Trungpa. Um, he was the Tibetan teacher that started the Shambhala tradition out in, in Boulder, um, I think in the early 70s. Um, he was a fairly controversial teacher in that um, he uh, taught a, a kind of style of, he didn't, it's not really a style, but it was, the way he emphasized the Dharma was that, that, that he didn't believe in hiding anything. And um, he was openly uh, very enthusiastic about alcohol. So he drank, uh, and by many people, they felt that he was an alcoholic. Um, he died at 46, I believe, of cirrhosis. So we can draw, the, draw a conclusion there. Um, but he was also open about um, his sexuality. And he was very, he didn't hide that he had relationships with many students. Um, and for these reasons, um, I've always held Trumpa with a kind of a, an eyebrow raise, like what's going on there? What, what, what's, what's really up with this guy? Um, but his teaching, and you know, one of my teachers worked very closely with him, um, Pima Chodron, who I know has inspired many of you, was, was very close, closely working with him. Um, his teaching, in some ways, to quote, one of my teachers said he had a, a knack for articulating the Dharma more clearly than um, uh, articulating the Dharma for the Western mind in particular. Um, and, and so I just wanted to give a little bit of that context in case you thought I was trying to uh, pitch you a, a curveball that I was not, was, was uh, trying to, trying to uh, maybe uh, mask as a fastball. <laughs> so he's a kind of a curveball teacher. Um, and there's a, there's a, a video or a movie about him. I believe it's called crazy wisdom on YouTube. If you're, if you're interested in, in checking out what he was, uh, kind of teaching, but, um, this book that called the myth of freedom, um, has some really great talks that he gave. And I just want to share with you two paragraphs here from, from his book, from his chapter on egolessness which is essentially a manifestation of this truth of change. And that's why I'm bringing it in right now. So Trinpa says, the effort to secure our happiness, that is to maintain ourselves in relationship to something else, is the process of ego. The effort to secure happiness to maintain ourselves in relationship to something else is the process of ego. But this effort is futile because there are continual gaps in our seemingly solid world, continual cycles of death and rebirth, 
constant change. The sense of continuity and solidity of self is an illusion. There really is no such thing as ego. And when he's saying that, he's saying as a noun. There's no such thing as an ego, as a noun, as a thing. There's no such thing. Rather, he says, it's a succession of confusions that create ego. The process which is ego actually consists of a flicker of confusion, a flicker of aggression, a flicker of grasping, all of which exist only in the moment. Since we cannot hold on to the present moment, we cannot hold on to me and mine and make them solid things. Next paragraph. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. It is like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly that they generate the illusion of continual movement. I'm going to pause there. When I uh, read that, I was um, reminded of, actually just when I, when I first read it recently, it, it brought me back to a memory of being in elementary school. And I, I don't know if you're of the age when in elementary school, sometimes the teacher would bring out a little movie projector <laughs> to show a movie on a, a screen that would pull down in front of the room. And I remember looking back and just being fascinated by this, this little projector. Um, you could see the, the light from the, from the bulb of the projector, and you could see the reels that would, that would, uh, would cycle the film fast enough through and past the light to project the images onto the screen. And the memory I had was that it's like the, the, the reels took a little time to get up to speed. And in the beginning, you could see those, those distinct frames of the film pass by. So there would be an image, a, a, a discontinuity or a, a, a bar or line between each frame. So there was one frame, line, another frame, another line, another frame, another line. And you got the sense that there was just the, the, the movie was nothing but discrete, discontinuous images that got rolling so fast and flickering by the light so quickly that when they were projected on the screen, it created the sense of a continuous fluid image. And that's not unlike the other thing I remember doing as a kid, probably around my time in elementary school, if you've ever had those flip books, or if you drew one of those flip books in art where you you get a stack of index cards and you kind of draw a ball on one corner and then maybe a person hitting the, the ball on, you know, in the next frame. And then you start to advance on every card. You advance the, the, um, the ball a little bit further on down the side of the card until when you flip through it fast enough, it looks like the ball is getting thrown or the ball is getting hit by, by, by just the speed at which you flip through the flip book. So I was thinking about that. Um, in this context. And, and this is really what I started to experience in, in, in Vipassana practice is that when we look really closely, 
we see this relentlessness of flickering sensation, sound, thought, feeling, and that there's nothing permanent or nothing solid within that flux. Now, Trungpa says, we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we often manipulate our thoughts to confirm it and are afraid of any contrary evidence. And this is, this is kind of a bold statement. It is this fear of exposure, this denial of impermanence, that imprisons us. And it follows from what he just said. It imprisons us because it locks us into a concept of a self separate from other. It reifies the sense of self and it reifies the other as solid entities that are themselves not permanent. He says, it's only by acknowledging impermanence that there is the chance to die and the space to be reborn and the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. I'm going to have more to say about that last line um, in my next installment next week. Um, but I, I want to just speak about it, sort of offer some reflections about this idea of looking at our experience similar to sort of slowing down the, the, the reels of the movie so that we start to see the, 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 uh, the, the impermanent nature of all our experiences. <clears throat> so the practice begins where we relax and observe what's occurring. And when we're in the present moment so far, we've been noticing when we're hearing sounds and when we're feeling physical sensations. And depending on how you've been using the practice, you may be labeling what you've been aware of. And that's one technique that, that is often used in Vipassana to label or make a mental tag of what is occurring moment by moment. So you might notice that you're, you have an itch, or you might hear a car going by, or you might hear the ticking of a clock. And the, the practice now is from recognizing what we think is the thing that we're experiencing. The practice is to look very closely at the nature of that object, what we're calling a thing or a noun, until we start to see that it's actually changing. When we look at, say, um, a car sound going by, you know, what part of that sound is the car as a thing? What part of like the experience of sound of a car is permanent, is solid, is unchanging? Similar when we look at sensations in the body, when we look at, say, our, we're just ordinary sensations that come up, maybe part of your body starts to get a little numb. It often happens in the hips when we meditate or in the back, or there could be tension. So we have these sensations that we call ache, sensations that we call hip, sensations that we call numbness, we're calling these experiences things. And the, the practice is to look at these 
and start to observe their process. What is, what is, as Upandita used to say to me, when you observe an object, how does it behave? And lo and behold, and, and you may have to take this on faith at, at, start, at the beginning, but when you start to look at anything, as I keep saying, it starts to reveal this changing quality or this changing characteristic. And watching sounds and sensations is a way to get, as I was trying to say last week, is a way to get a feeling for this flow of experience. It's a, it's a, it's a, I would say sounds and sensations are a kind of a gentle way to start to um, develop an acquired taste for change start to see oh yeah that, that 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 it's not it's not so threatening to hear sounds changing it's not so threatening to maybe see sensations changing your body but that process of observing change continues to mature and develop and gets and is brought closer to home we can say to observing our thoughts and feelings so the question was that came up over email was how does the uncertainty of change, how does the, the encountering the uncertainty of experience bring any comfort? How does how what, and I, the, the title of the talk, Peace with Uncertainty? How does observing changing this or the changing nature of, of conditions, how does that bring comfort? How does that bring peace? How does that reveal an ease? And so that's a, that's a really big question, an important one. Um, if, I, if we start with sounds, one of the things we've been exploring is how we, there's, there is the experience of what we take to be the pattern of sound. And when we observe that, we start to feel intuitively that there's a presence that's aware or awake to those sounds. And that, that presence um, is with the sounds, but it's not necessarily defined or uh, altered by the sounds. So that, you know, if, if we, if I could all, if I could virtually pipe in a car honk right now, like, it was a car honk. And I were to ask you all, are you that car honk? My hope is that you would all affirm and say, no, 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 we're not the, the car honk. We're, the, we're listening to where, the, where we are aware of the, the car honk, but not defined by the car honk. So that's, that's the first step, just to recognize that there's an awareness that is with, but undefined by the sound. And then we apply that same methodology of looking at the body, the field of physical sensation. And again, this is, this is moving the, the, the investigation closer to home. We look at the body and we see, oh yeah, there's whatever's going on, whether it's a, a, a nice tingle, like a nice resonance pose after a yin yoga or during a yin yoga class, or whether it's like a dragon pose sensation or um, just a numbness in your foot or a, a niggling little itch whatever sensation we look at, whatever pattern we see, we start to see that there's this field of changing sensation flowing 
and it may not flow with the kind of aesthetic beauty that you associate with flow, but it flow in the sense of just changing and not, not being static, not, not remaining solid and still, or not staying in place. It, it moves, there's change there. And then by observing that changing nature of the body, we start to feel, okay, there's also this, this presence that's knowing. Now, at times, that presence can feel like it's in your head. Sometimes it can feel like in your heart. Sometimes it can feel like it's sort of uh, in this nebulous space around you. I'm not getting to where that presence is or where we're locating it quite yet. But just to get a sense of it, that there is this awareness of the pulse in your leg or the tingling in your foot or the itch in your neck, that itself, just like the presence to the sound, is undefined or un. Um, undisturbed in a way by the sound or the sensation now with sensations it and even with sounds i could say that these stimuli could produce disturbance and and the, this was like the next part of what i think was coming up over some questions was you know it, it can be all very well and good to flow with things that are neutral you know like whether it's and I don't, you know, we will all categorize things uh, as neutral differently from, from, from each other. But let's just say, like, you looking at falling leaves was, was, was uh, deemed as a neutral experience. You could look at that, you could see that maybe the beauty of it, um, but it didn't agitate your heart to watch a leaf fall off a tree. See the change there. And the question is, like, what about situations where we do care quite a lot about what's changing? What do we do with situations where we might lose something we care for tremendously? And as one person said, that kind of loss, at the very least, is quite emotionally disconcerting. And I would say that's a dry understatement of emotional disconcernment. Like, Losses bring great pain. And the question is, how is our practice in observing the changingness of sounds and sensations as a beginning, how is this practice preparing us to face and be with the inevitable losses? And that's a, that's a, that's a practice question. I'm offering some reflections around this, and these are things to, to test within your own experience. And I'm not asking you or encouraging you to agree with me or believe with me in any way. But just take it as a reflection. And if, if any of this is helpful, use it. If it's not so helpful, just leave it aside. But <clears throat> the way into the peace of uncertainty is not to kind of hide out in an intellectual posture that life is uncertain. Or as, you know, sometimes people might say, well, this too shall pass. They, I don't know who uttered that phrase first, but it's a, it's one when something challenging is coming up, people often say, oh, well, I can, I'll, I'll perform my spiritual knowledge by saying this too shall pass. I'm, I'm demonstrating my credibility as a spiritual practitioner. I know that line, this too shall pass. And, you know, on, on one level, sure, it will pass. But that's, 
often being used as a kind of intellectual posture that is likely trying to guard or protect someone from the pain of what's difficult at the moment that they're hoping will pass at some point. So the, the way I think this practice really prepares us and, and it, it won't shield us from loss. I want to be very clear about that. This practice will not shield you from the difficulties of life. But it can help us work with the difficulties by seeing the flowing nature of all experience. So, in one level, the awareness that is un agitated, undisturbed by sound is also undisturbed by great loss. It's not an indifferent awareness. It's not a numb or kind of uh, complacent or callous awareness. But it, it is it, it possesses the same nature with all experience, whether it's the, a passing sound or a very painful passing. So our practice is in sense, one of getting clear within ourselves, the relationship between awareness and objects of awareness. That's the preparation. And inevitably, when we sit, emotionally charged material does come up. I don't know anyone that sits and doesn't get emotionally charged material. In, at least in, in, at some point in their practice, but often it comes up fairly regularly. And that's the good news. So it comes up. That's, that's where now our practice can help us look at that more closely. So if something comes up that's charged, it's not a distraction. It's not a mistake. It's, it is the practice. So when the charged emotion, the disconcerting emotion arises, the pain, the anxiety, the fear, the anger, whatever it might be, the practice is to look closely at the nature of that experience. Not to suppress it, not to try to get away from it. But the caveat I always try to give is if it's too much and you're getting flooded or triggered, then definitely shift your attention back to the perch. Play your edge with that. But when there's enough wherewithal, the idea is to really look at thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories with the same calm, clear attention you give to listening to sounds. Or sensations. And it's in doing that. So moving the, the, the needle closer to uh, what we take to be me. And really, I'd say, opening up everything we take to be me within this, this process. That we can start to feel that the, the, the truth of this statement that awareness can hold anything. And awareness is undefined by anything. Now that can sound like something you could wrestle with and debate, and, 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 I, and I have had those debates too. But 
that's the that's the movement of this process is trying to see the the unreliability of change whether it's in sound a sensation a thought a feeling and to start to feel the refuge that awareness gives us that that awareness is a refuge in relationship to the changiness of whatever is occurring there's a passage i wanted to end this talk with um, from a teacher in Cambridge, Narayan Liebenson, who I've sat many retreats with. And this is from her wonderful book called The Magnanimous Heart. I'm hoping this passage will summarize kind of some of the things I've been trying to reflect on. She says, yet along with sorrow, and I'll add in disconcerting emotion, along with sorrow, there is the backdrop of consciousness. The inner atmosphere that holds whatever arises. Like the sky holds lightning. To be human, she says, is to, be, to experience the lightning strikes. I parenthetically added here. Maybe to be human is to be a lightning rod. Literally. But she continues, she says, meditation can shift our experience so profoundly that grief arises and passes away, while the backdrop remains serene. Lightning strikes, but the vast sky remains undisturbed. All beings have moments of being struck by grief, loss, separation pain this is our human dilemma she says through our practice of meditation access to the backdrop becomes possible so the comfort within uncertainty the peace within uncertainty is not in the experience that's triggering a feeling of uncertainty. The peace is within the backdrop of awareness that's holding the uncertainty. And I don't wish lightning bolts on anybody. <laughs> Start with myself. I don't want to get I don't want to get struck by lightning. I don't want any of you to get struck by lightning. but we will. I don't mean literal lightning. And when you, and I'm sure I'll have more to say on this or reflect on it. When we open to that truth, it does change priorities quite a bit. And if we can remember it, I think it's also a it's it, and I, I this is a part of my practice to, to remember this more. Remembering it becomes a wellspring of compassion. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk. I hope the reflections stimulate uh, investigation and exploration and curiosity in your own practice. 
those are the qualities that matter most, I think, in the development and transformation of our being on the spiritual path. And before we say goodbye, I just want to say, if you would like to practice with me and Terry, you can join us for the day-long retreat, A Day of Yin, on December 11th. There's information for you in the show notes on that. And um, if you'd also like to just to practice with us in an ongoing way as part of our weekly series of classes that include our core practices that synergistically work together, the meditation, the yin yoga, the qigong, please consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. We offer memberships at a sliding scale. So whatever your budget, we have a membership rate that should work for you. And to that end, your membership is a direct support to our work, particularly to the podcast work. So we thank you for that. But we also encourage you to practice with us so that you can avail yourself of our support, meaning avail yourself of our ability to help support your continuity. You don't have to do this alone. We can help structure some continuity for you. And that we feel and what we've been hearing from members is just incredibly beneficial in terms of um, deepening the practice through regular participation with the practice. And of course, the deepening that occurs isn't necessarily a different experience, but it's a deepening of appreciation of the numinous, the mystical, the sublime in everyday life. That's our, that's where we're going. We're coming right back to the, the immediacy of the sublime right now. So check out uh, the links in the show notes. You can head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. You'll see information about how you might register for the sangha there. We really look forward to practicing with you, and we are so appreciative of those of you that have joined um, coming in from the podcast audience. It's great to have you on board with us, and we're just so gratified to hear your experiences with these practices and how they're supporting you. So thanks so much. Take good care, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.